You are listening to season two of the Not Neurotypical podcast. I'm your host, Laura Stan, and season two is all about my continued late diagnosis journey, finding my voice, and figuring out what the heck to do now. So strap on your safety belts, hold on tight, because it's still going to be a bumpy ride. Hey, hey, hey. Episode 19 crazy. I can't believe it. Before we deep dive into whatever I'm going to info dump about next, I wanted to read a review first, a recent review from Rachel Lynn. I think it's amazing. And I want to share it because, well, you'll see. I have spent so much of my adult life working hard to make sure the people around me feel understood because it is important. I know that I do this because I have spent most of my 42 years feeling misunderstood, feeling overlooked, feeling unaccepted, feeling weird and odd, but never knowing why, feeling frustrated and angry at things that don't make sense, getting in trouble because I can't seem to manage to do things the right way, or I ask too many questions. It goes on and on. Laura, this podcast is a godsend. Every episode I've listened to, I'm like, Oh my God, this is me. I do this. I've done that. I'm not crazy. I feel understood. Now this is a long road moving forward, but to know that the things that I need or the way I do things, that there is a reason for it. I don't know what else I can say, but thank you. Rachel Lynn, thank you so much for sharing this. It means a lot to me. I've said this many times that I love the reviews and to hear what you guys think, even if it's not public, um, even if you just message me on Instagram, because podcasting is really weird. You are kind of talking to a wall and you don't really know what the reception is. Um, so I just love the reviews and I really, really do deeply relate to everything you said. So I'm not surprised that you are relating to my content in here in the podcast because it's true. Um, This whole new way of thinking and processing everything with more understanding is so beneficial to us. So thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please write a review Um, mainly Apple podcasts, I think has reviews, but, and subscribe as well. Whatever you listen to this podcast on subscribe. So you get updates. And also I had started a Patreon a little while ago. I told you guys about that. If you would like to support me, I am doing secret podcasts once a month and they are special, special podcasts for, um, support. And I really, really, really appreciate your support. And it helps me to kind of keep it all together and be able to do this. And it also helps neurodivergent adults because most of the support that I get from Patreon goes right to paying for the platform for the not neurotypical squad and kind of supporting all of that and getting content together and all of that. So Your support means the world to me. I would really appreciate it if you go to www.patreon.com slash Laura Stan and pledge your support. That would be amazing. But anyway, so today I wanted to talk about quite a few things. So if you follow me on Instagram, 
you would know that I had started kind of going into this trauma response type content because I was researching it. I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to understand it better. And I am a information gatherer. That's what I do. Um, I need information. It makes me feel prepared and ready for things. I research everything. I Google search anything anyone is talking about. Like uh, when I used to go to parties way long time ago, I mean, it's been a long time. I'm in my mid thirties now and I have kids and all that. So that doesn't really happen. But when I used to go to parties and, you know, like the relaxed ones where people would kind of be talking and just kind of chilling, like those were the parties that I liked. I don't like wild, crazy parties. Um, (laughs) Since we had cell phones, because I'm old enough to where some parties I was going to, you didn't even have a cell phone. Yes, I know I'm old, but, um, yeah, I Google searched just everything. If I didn't know, I fact checked everybody. I still do that. My husband says something and I'm like, no, you're wrong. And even if I know he's wrong, I just Google search it to prove it. Um, (laughs) probably black or white thinking, or I don't know even where that goes, but I just, I think it comes from so often misunderstanding things or, um, it's almost like an anxiety response that I have. Like I have to understand information and I need that in a concrete way. And Google really helps me with that because you have, you know, a wealth of knowledge at your fingertips. And I think it comes from a place where there was so much that I didn't understand. And maybe I sensed that even as a kid and it just frustrated me that I, didn't get it or understand or didn't know something that I thought I should, or it was like embarrassing or something. I don't know, but probably a trauma response, but there is a lot to discuss. So we're going to go into it. So recently I had posted about types of responses to past trauma, and I found it so interesting. I wanted to share because There is a lot of studies coming out about PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, and autism. I have personally talked to many, many, many autistic adults that also have a PTSD or CPTSD diagnosis, and CPTSD is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which means it's more like prolonged trauma that you've dealt with. Um, it's kind of like a more severe, my understanding, I may be wrong, but my understanding of it is that it's a more severe, um, base, not severe. I hate saying that word, but it's, it's more aimed at people who had long-term trauma. So not just like one crazy traumatic event that changed your whole life. It's more like like a kid who's bullied for years at school, they would be getting a CPTSD diagnosis from my understanding because um, it's complex. It's not from one event. It's a series of things that happened in development and things like that. If you're a neurodivergent adult or you have a neurodivergent kid, you're going to relate 
you know, to just a lot of challenging things growing up because we talk about all the time, the world is not set up for brains like ours. (laughs) It's set up for a certain type of thing. And, you know, on my last podcast, I was talking about how everything's one way. And if that doesn't work for you, like school, certain jobs, you know, there's just one way to do it and you have to do it that way. And like when you start working, it's like, well, if you can't do it, I'll find someone who can do it this way. You feel so disposable. I mean, I could go on and on just talking about all of that, but, um, you know, it's a lot of things that we go through are traumatic. So there's a lot of studies coming out that almost suggest that pretty much all autistic adults and some ADHD late diagnosed adults basically have PTSD. It's like going to be a part of the diagnosis possibly in the next DSM and and things like that. I've been reading up a, a lot about it. It's very, very interesting. What I find most interesting about it is that I've never thought I had anything like PTSD, but then when I read about it, I really relate to a lot of it. And I got on a deep dive because I was just relating to things and it was fascinating. And in my head, I'm like, could I have PTSD? I mean, you think of like combat veterans and people like that. So I found it so, so, so interesting. So let's go into it a little deeper. So it's very, very common for people who have any struggles not just neurodivergent people, to have trauma responses. So if you've been through certain events, like people, neurotypicals who have had an abusive relationship that they were in or abusive parents or, you know, traumatic events in any way, they're going to have trauma responses as well. So it's not something that is just happening to neurodivergent people, but studies do show that the things that we're going to be talking about are more common and more severe. I hate that word, but I don't really know what else to use. Seen in a bigger, grander way (laughs) um, to neurodivergent people. So there's three main categories of trauma responses, and it's emotional reactions, avoidance, and worldview change. And emotional responses are things like feeling guilty or blaming yourself for things beyond your control. So I think anyone that's ever been in an abusive relationship or been, you know, had a past history with that totally understands that. Um, Anyone who's been gaslight, which is gaslit, if you don't know what gaslighting is, that means that someone has emotionally manipulated you to make you think that something that basically they have done or they're not understanding is actually you not understanding something or you doing something. Um, Let me pull up a definition. I feel like I'm not explaining this very well. Gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or a group covertly sows seeds of doubt in a targeted individual, making them question their own memory, perception, or judgment, often evoking in them cognitive dissonance and other changes such as low self-esteem. 
Using denial, misdirection, contradiction, and misinformation, gaslighting involves attempts to destabilize the victim and delegitimize the victim's beliefs. If you are neurodivergent, I can guarantee you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And even if you didn't know what gaslighting was, and now you do, I feel like you can relate. I think any kid with ADHD is gaslit constantly by teachers, administration, um, saying, oh, just try harder, or you really have to put your mind to it and things like that. Um, Autism especially is really hard because the social issues mixed with the general misunderstanding and the general misinformation out there about autism makes gaslighting such a huge issue for neurodivergent people. So, you know, that's being affected by that and having an emotional reaction maybe where gaslighting is not happening and you're almost acting like it is, that is a trauma response. And that would be also feeling fearful or anxious in social situations or situations that have been negative in the past. That's a trauma response, an emotional trauma response and bursts of anger. So these are trauma responses directly related to PTSD and CPTSD. (laughs) I can't even say it. Um, Like I said, bursts of anger, feeling fearful or anxious in social situations or social situations that have been negative in the past, feeling guilty or blaming yourself for things beyond your control. The second category is avoidance. That's avoiding situations or people due to unexplainable anxiety, feeling numb or numbing yourself to cope, If you didn't know, that's not healthy. I just found that out. (laughs) Um, I used to, like, I'm definitely one of those numbing people. Like, I, I was always thinking, like, oh, it's just my slow processing. Or it's, especially, like, over the last 10 months or so, nine months that I've been diagnosed, I even in my head was like, oh, well, it's okay to be numb. It's, it's like me processing. But after the research I've done, I'm starting to realize that it's not slow processing. I am numbing myself from feeling anything at all because I can't handle it, but we'll get into that later. And it's not healthy. Um, there is better ways to cope is what I'm saying. Healthier ways to cope instead of numbing yourself. And then the third part of avoidance or the third example is fear of being misunderstood or misinterpreted and in response, avoiding the person or situation. And I just, you can't see me right now, but I have my hand up so high. And that's because the avoidance is me. I'm an avoider. I'm a massive avoider. I am a master avoider. Like I'm the friggin' Houdini of autism, <laughs> like of trauma response uh, related to autism and just avoiding things. Like I have pretty much set myself up in a cave where I never have to come out of it. And then we're in quarantine right now with COVID-19, which I'm trying not to talk about too much because I know everyone is just sick of talking about it. But um And I'm able to handle all of that because I've been avoiding 
the whole world for so long. So my hands up. Once again, avoidance is avoiding situations or people due to unexplainable anxiety, feeling numb or numbing yourself to cope, and the fear of being misunderstood or misinterpreted. Wow. I mean, that is a big one. I I really fear that. Like, I'm one of those people that will so over-explain myself to the point where I'm annoying and I'm even annoying myself. And that's a trauma response because I'm scared to death of being misunderstood or misinterpreted because I've been tone policed my whole life or I said something not the right way or not exactly how I meant it. People get upset and I don't want to upset anybody. And no one's just like, oh, I know you didn't mean it that way. Like, why can people never be that way? Not like I'm that way, but can other people be? Just kidding. (laughs) Um, The third area is worldview changes. What does that mean? Once again, these are all related to PTSD trauma responses that I found in my research. Worldview changes means difficulty trusting others or assuming everyone is out to get you. Once again, my hands up. Blaming yourself or telling yourself you are the problem instead of others who have mistreated you. And I've had that issue in the past when I was younger. I don't know if me just like growing up, I got out of that. I think I just like, when I started to avoid (laughs) everything, I kind of like just got rid of that BS. So I've gotten better with that. I don't know why or how, and I don't have any suggestions for that one, but um, I've gotten better with that on my own. But anyway, the third example is seeing yourself as inadequate or weak. And I don't struggle with that as much as I used to, but I remember having feelings like that, even as a toddler, um, like some of my youngest memories are like negative feelings, like I'm not good enough and things like that. And it's totally a trauma response. And it's just so important to be aware of this stuff. Um, it's sad that things that we relate to like this on such a deep level can be part of a diagnosis that literally is like dealing with trauma. Just for the way our brains are, it's, it's really sad. But the way we kind of deal with it or the way I do is I like to get a lot of information and process how that information applies to me. And, you know, like one of the things, seeing yourself as inadequate or weak, gathering all the information makes me feel better, strong. Like I understand things, like I know things. So that's what I do. Um, And it goes deeper too. So (laughs) this is the crazy part. I posted about it. I got a lot of comments when I shared about this. So this is not part of PTSD, but it is definitely related to trauma response. But in all of my research, I found a term called distress intolerance. And I'd never heard it before. Obviously, I understand what that means when I read it. But I could not believe what I read about it. So distress intolerance is a perceived inability to fully experience 
unpleasant, aversive, or uncomfortable emotions that is accompanied by a desperate need to escape the uncomfortable emotions. So that right there, like you think of PTSD and I talked about how I'm such an extreme avoider, but if you go deeper, I don't know if it's PTSD trauma response or is it more distress intolerance Difficulties tolerating distress are often linked to fear of experiencing negative emotions. And I look back into my history of development and I had an explosive father and then I had a mother who was the exact opposite of that. Um, For lack of a better word, I had a doormat of a mother and that sounds terrible and she was abused by my dad So I'm not saying that in a negative way, but it's true. And she was that way because she had to be that way. So my examples was explosion and nothing. Those were my two examples. No emotion at all or too much emotion and no one was controlling anything. My mom wasn't even letting herself feel things too control it. And my dad couldn't control anything. So it's like, of course, if I never had any good examples or was taught healthy coping skills, of course, I'm dealing with this crazy stuff. And then, you know, you add autism and ADHD on top of it with all of those things. It's crazy. Like I need this stuff. This is why I'm sharing it with you guys. Um, but distress occurs not due to the intensity of the emotion itself, but rather how much you fear it or how unpleasant it feels to you or how unbearable it seems or how much you want to get away from it. That's what determines if you are intolerant of distress. And there's three different categories, which I found so interesting because not everyone is all three. There's not, it's not like it's also a spectrum. We keep talking about that word, but so not everyone feel or like is distress intolerant with all three categories. Some people are, but not everyone is. Some people are just one, two, or you could be all three or, you know, and it's not even every part of every category, but the three categories are the sad, the mad, and the scared. So the sad group includes emotions that reflect sadness at varying degrees of intensity. This would include disappointment, hurt, despair, guilt, shame, sadness, depression, grief, and misery. So we will kind of just discuss like all the categories and then we'll kind of reel it in. So the mad category includes emotions that reflect anger at varying degrees of intensity. That would include irritation, agitation, frustration, disgust, jealousy, anger, rage, and hatred. And the scared category, which I'm raising my hand at, even though I'm not generally a fearful person, which I found so interesting, this includes emotions that reflect fear at varying degrees of intensity, including nervousness, anxiety, dread, fear, panic, terror. I mean, nobody likes feeling any of these things, right? But this is what, if you're 
distress intolerant, you're going to relate to these five things that someone who is distress intolerant would say. Feeling distressed or upset is unbearable to me. When I'm distressed, I can only think about how bad I feel. My feelings are so intense that they take over. There is nothing worse than feeling distressed or upset. I don't tolerate being distressed or upset as well as other people do or most people do. My feelings of distress are not acceptable, so I'll do anything to avoid being distressed or upset. And here's some more examples. Other people seem to tolerate feeling upset better than I can. Being distressed is always a major ordeal for me, and I'm, in sh I'm ashamed when I feel distressed or upset. My feelings of distress, distress scare me, and I'll do anything to stop feeling distressed. When I feel distressed, I must immediately do something about it. When I feel distressed, I can only concentrate on how bad the distress feels. And beliefs related to distress intolerance is, I can't stand this. This is unbearable. I hate this feeling. I must stop this feeling. I must get rid of it. Take it away. I can't cope with this feeling. I will lose control. I'm going to go crazy. This feeling will keep going on forever. It is wrong to feel this way. I feel stupid and unacceptable. I feel weak. This is bad. This is dangerous. So different escape methods too. This is very interesting. Reassurance seeking and checking. I'm raising my hand again. Trying to allay your distressing emotions by excessively seeking reassurance from other people or engaging in some repetitive checking behavior. Um, I can't tell you how much this put a huge light bulb out for me, that alone. I mean, there's more, but some of my earliest memories are me constantly asking my parents for reassurance and then being annoyed at me. Like my dad would tell me, oh, we're going to do this. And of course, like anyone who's older would think, okay, that sounds good. But I used to literally, I used to say, do you promise? Do you promise? And I used to ask over and over again, do you promise? And they'd be like, yes, yes, stop. Like, what's wrong with you? Um, and then I found myself doing that into adulthood. So like some of the stuff that we're talking about, I've been experiencing my whole life since before I can remember. Um, that's also because, as I said, I've said many times, I was in an abusive household, so not necessarily typical on every level, but I, I know so many neurodivergent adults relate to all of this. So I still want to really share, um, you might've not developed some of these things until later. Um, but it really, I also want to point out too, that if you are neurodivergent, and you grew up with an understanding environment and you learned healthy coping skills when you were younger, this is probably not going to be an issue with you. It's not necessarily neurodivergent versus neurotypical. It's not like all of this stuff is just that way, but it just so happens that more neurotypical people learn healthy coping skills and more neurodivergent people 
for so, so, so many various reasons, don't get taught the healthy coping skills that work for them. And so the next part is examples of reassurance seeking and checking. I wanted to share more about that. Um, Having to repetitively check on things on your body, such as a physical sensation, sensation, symptom, or feature, or in your environment, over preparing for things like projects, work, and social events. I mean, I can't tell you, like I said, I'm that like information gatherer, like this is it. That's a perfect example. Keeping things in excessive order, also me, I feel panic if I don't know where something is. Um, And then overly questioning other people's opinions to calm you down, like family or friends. For me, it was like, do you promise? Do you promise? But, um, so avoidance related to distress intolerance is when you avoid any situation or scenario, place, or person or activity that you know is likely to bring on distressing emotions. That's me. We've already discussed that. And it kind of relates to PTSD as well. Distraction and suppression, trying to push away the distress rather than sitting with the emotion and feeling what needs to be felt numbing and withdrawing things you do to tune out from the distress. So the most common way of doing this would be using alcohol or drugs to escape emotional discomfort. And binge eating is also a very common method used to try to alleviate distress as well as other forms of self-harm. And these are all things that plague neurodivergent people who were either late diagnosed or not treated or not helped or, you know, in an environment that made everything worse. I mean, all of those things are so, so, so common with neurodivergent people. And it's just, I don't know, really crazy, this stuff we're talking about. And it's all this stuff and it's so complex too. It's like, all these new things that I'm trying to process and I really wanted to share with you, but what do you do? Like facing your feelings, like how do you accept distress? Like what, what do you do? Like that's, that was kind of my research. Like, okay. So I'm realizing now that I don't have healthy coping mechanisms in place for, I've just got really good at avoiding. So that's not really growth, right? <laughs> like, like in my head, I'm 35 and I'm like, I can handle stuff now. I grew up, but I'm starting to realize that I didn't really teach myself how to handle anything. I just have avoided everything, everything. <laughs> like how is what kind of person would completely shelter themselves and then think that they improved everything for themselves? I'm kind of like laughing at myself right now because, uh, uh. okay, anyway. So like I said, how do you accept these emotions that cause you distress? Like it's easy to say, but I don't know, like some things that I found, some tips, I haven't worked through this stuff, obviously, because this was all research done within the last one to two weeks. And 
I feel like this is going to take a long time for me. But um, what I found, they say the first step to accepting distress is to start seeing your feelings and emotions in a new way or in a new light. Emotional discomfort is very normal and it's a universal human experience. Does that not make you feel better? Because that never makes me feel better. Like when I read stuff like that, I'm like, oh, okay, everyone feels that great. Because I don't know, maybe it's my low empathy, but I'm just like, I don't really care if everyone has a hard time too. It's like, I just don't want to have a hard time. But anyway, these emotions are not just common, normal, and okay. They're actually important and useful for the, for us. And that's where I start to be like, okay, this is starting to make a little sense. So fear, while it can be distressing, is important for our survival. We know that. And that's kind of like, I've talked about it before, flipping the script. I like to say that, but it's, it's helpful to me to kind of think about things in that way and kind of detach and be like, okay, so... I fear a situation, but fear is not the bad thing. It's my trauma response that's the bad thing or tell, you know, making things worse than they are in my head and all of that anxiety and everything. And, you know, it's just a new way to look at things. So similarly to fear, anger is also a helpful emotion to have. And I tell my kids all the time that it's not a bad thing to be mad. It's a bad thing to act out of madness by hitting, you know, anger and hitting and pulling hair and all of that. You can tell I have toddlers, but, um, imagine if some wrong or injustice was done towards ourselves or someone else and we weren't phased by it at all. Um, and you see that a lot. So anger isn't a bad thing. It's, you know, those negative But speaking of trauma response, um, I've been thinking about it a lot and I need a lot of work on it and I'm excited because, you know, I think trauma response only hurts ourselves. That's the problem is that, I mean, it can definitely hurt other people as well, but it's directly negative to us. It's not seeing things in a realistic way. It is also not contributing to healthy relationships that are so important to us and things like that. I think dealing with trauma response is so important. And speaking of that, in episode four or somewhere around there, I forget, it's been a long time, um, I mentioned that in June of 2019, when I had my light bulb moment and realized I was autistic. I texted my best friend at the time and she knew that my son was diagnosed. And then I was like, Oh my God, I took this crazy test. And it was the AQ that I've talked about nonstop. And I'm pretty sure I'm autistic and all of that. And I probably said like maybe two more paragraphs. It was through text. So it wasn't like crazy long. And she was just like, her text response was like, you think question mark, like something really lame like that. Uh, she definitely didn't care and not even pretend to care. Um, and I was going through the 
biggest moment of my life, I have already avoided everyone. So it was pretty much just like her, my husband, my mom and sister that I had talked to about it originally. And because it's scary too, like I didn't over prepare yet. So I didn't want to just like tell the world because that's a trauma response as well. Um, But I was hurt by her response and I avoided her from then on. Um, in my head, I pretended like it was like, well, if she cares, she'll reach out to me. And I really want to feel like while I'm going through all this, I didn't want to like add anything to my plate. So it was like, let me just deal with all this stuff. And then later when I'm kind of in a better place, I can talk to her. And that was June. And her response was literally, you think, question mark, and then really nothing else. And I'm not even exaggerating. Um, And I didn't hear from her until September on my birthday. And she still didn't even ask how I'm doing, what's going on. I had already been diagnosed by now. um, And I never went back and talked to her about it because I'm an avoider and it was awkward. And on my birthday, she just said, Hey, beautiful, happy birthday. But that was it. She didn't ask like how I'm doing. Um, nothing that I really felt like I needed from our relationship because I really genuinely thought we were best friends and she really cared about me. Um, so that was September. It was three months from that original one. And I just ignored it because I was like, I can't handle this right now. Uh, Because I'm an avoider. I'm going to keep saying that, but it's true. So then yesterday, which is April 11th, she must have been really bored. (laughs) I don't know. We're all in quarantine all over the world. So it's like, ah. But yesterday, she texts me out of nowhere. And she says, and it's, it's a possibility that you're listening to this. So because I did tell her about the podcast. But anyway, I'm going to be real here, y'all. And I'm not going to avoid things anymore. (laughs) I'm going to get myself into so much trouble, if that's true. Anyway, so she texted me yesterday, and her first text quote is, are you not talking to me because of autism? And I was just like, what the bleep? Like in my head, I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, how do I read that? I asked my husband, I'm like, doesn't that feel like passive aggressive or something? I don't know. It was so weird. And I thought about it for like 30 minutes. I'm like, how do I even respond? Like I wanted to respond. I, I was happy that she reached out, even though it was 10 months later from that original weird text. Um. And so I said, I'm not talking to you. I'm confused because I haven't heard from you either. And she was like, well, I sent you a message in September. Well, anyway, how are you doing? And I updated her on everything. And her response was, you don't seem like what I think of as autistic, but I'm no doctor. Yeah, no crap. (laughs) But I told her, you know, after I had learned what autism can really look like for, you know, more than just the stereotypical stuff, it all made sense. And then most people think about autism when you have cognitive disabilities and delays with it. 
And she goes, well, autism just makes me think about model trains or maps and not being able to make eye contact. So I'll have to do more research. And I said, yeah, all the invisible stuff is what everyone misses naturally. And that was me being really nice. (laughs) Uh, Because that stuff hurts. And I'll tell you why. And if you're not autistic and you want to be supportive, I want to make this so clear because I've had other people who have been shocked to hear that I'm autistic, but they have said nothing to hurt me when doing that. And here's my point. So I told my other friend later at a later time when I had more of a grasp of it and she was like, what? That's crazy. Like, tell me everything. Tell me more about it. Like, tell me what you've learned. So in her head, she might be thinking, you're not, you're not autistic. Like, come on. I thought the same thing, you know? I mean, I don't get upset with people being shocked because I was shocked. I can relate to that. I understand. I mean, now I don't understand how I was shocked and never (laughs) knew because it just literally makes sense of everything in my life. But it's not that you have to fake being surprised. It's how you talk to us and how you either support or diminish us. And telling someone about anything that doesn't quite make sense right away could really take a huge lesson from my other friend who was like, what? That's crazy. Tell me more. Tell me what you know. Like, let me learn. And that's great for me, especially like my personality type or my type of autism where I like get to info dump because it was a special interest. So I friggin' told her everything and shared and I felt comfortable and it was very validating because she could have been thinking anything, but she decided to speak in a supportive way instead of saying something like, well, I don't think about you when I think about autism, which is probably valid It's just like a hurtful thing to say because I shared that I was officially diagnosed. It's that same thing, like the crazy people out there that are like, oh yeah, autism is overdiagnosed now. And that's really just stigma and not understanding what autism is. I mean, let's be real. That's when you don't understand. Of course, more people are going to start getting diagnosed with stuff as we learn more about it and as we understand it better, which is what's happening. Um you know, researchers have huge, massive outreach now and can do a lot larger studies and can do, reach out to more people in a way that's very positive. Of course, we're going to have more people diagnosed as we learn and as we reach this information age that we're in with the internet and everyone being so connected. Um, but yeah, so there's stuff that we can all think and be aware of, but it's, it's just how you say it. And it's not tone policing. This is really like the big thing. It's like, I kind of thought about that last night. I was like, am I just like being a big baby? And like, am I being rigid and expecting one thing and getting another and getting mad about it? But no, I don't think it's me because it's just always going to hurt when you tell someone something and they're just like, well, I don't think so. Right. That's just, 
not supportive. And you can think that, like, I'm sure my friend, my other friend at first, she was probably thinking the same thing. And I've already established that, but she was just like, tell me more, like, tell me about it. Like, what have you learned? And she was so supportive and awesome. And she's not autistic, by the way. Once again, being supportive and accepting of people does not require previous knowledge or understanding. Accepting people is just literally accepting them and saying, okay, why don't you like, tell me more? Like that's perfect. That's a perfect example of acceptance. And I think autistic people like myself can also learn from this as well, because I also tend to be rigid and people have told me things and I've done this. So we're not like in the clear here, because I think a lot of us kind of do this stuff too to other people and then want us to not get that in return. I mean, I've had people like told me things and I'm just like, yeah, no way, you know? And over the years I've silenced that. But yeah, I mean, I felt like a child that I just never really talked to her again. It was definitely a trauma response, but last night we texted and this is how I feel today. I was very honest and open and I told her straight up, I really needed support and I wanted to feel like you cared that I was going through possibly the hardest thing I was ever going to go through or the hardest thing I've been through. Um, not that autism is this horrible thing, but I was like, you know, mid thirties going through this like crisis, uh, pretty much existential crisis. Cause I'm like, you know, I'm who I am now. Like, this is another thing. She's texting me 10 months later and I'm not who I was. She never knew me, uh, which is weird. It's like, how do we handle that? You know, when, when you're, finding yourself and someone kind of doesn't talk to you for a while. And then I think back and I'm just like, she doesn't even know who I am now. Like we haven't talked in the last 10 months and I've completely changed in so many ways. I mean, I'm still me, but a lot of the mask has come off. I have huge understanding in myself that I didn't used to have. Even my husband says I'm just a very, very different person in a, in a good way. But what he's, what he means is my true self is coming out. Not that I'm a different person negatively, but you know, my I've I've been able to bring out who I really am, and she doesn't know who I am <laughs> at all because it's been ten months, and she hasn't been on this journey with me, and her loss. Um, but she did apologize and she said, you know, we just kind of stopped talking and I kind of let my ego get in the way and all of that. And I really appreciated her apologizing and I apologize as well because I did feel like a child that I just avoided her and never talked to her again. Um, but really, you know, I needed support and I, I was seeking comfort and I didn't get that. And it's fair. It's fair to want that and express that. But I didn't. I avoided it and I had a big, big trauma response. 
and I didn't handle it in a healthy way. So I also apologized and it felt good to be honest about it. But now I'm here where it's like, what do I do? Like she was my best friend, but I feel like the last 10 months has been like 20 years of growth. It feels like, um, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Definitely not avoid her anymore, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, she is truly lovely and definitely not like a bad person or anything like that. Um, and I don't think any of her response was to hurt me or anything like that, of course, but it's just a true thing that we deal with often. And it's very frustrating and it's hard to read. And are we going to accept this stuff and work on it and educate people and improve it? Or are we going to avoid everything and have trauma responses and just continue the cycle of hurt and pain and never really deal with anything? You've made it. That was kind of heavy and I apologize about that, but I really want to encourage you to gather information, figure out what you think your trauma responses might be. And if you need help, get a therapist or go to your therapist that you're seeing and figure this stuff out because I really believe, at least for me, trauma responses have been so integral to hindering my growth in so many ways and isolating me from relationships and just so many things. It's been so hurtful to me personally. And I just realized, you know, all of this stuff that's trauma responses that I never realized. So I hope that you got some value out of this and continue the discussion in the not neurotypical squad. If you'd like to, I've put a lot of resources on there that you can kind of go to for this information. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review if you like what you've been hearing or message me Instagram or hello at laurastan.com. Thank you so much for joining me and I hope that you can leave this place on a positive note.